This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week is yet another one of those people who is a quintessential Bloomingtonian. Now, this fellow's an environmental journalist, a photographer, an author. He teaches journalism at the media school at Indiana University. He is, of course, Steve Higgs. Steve, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Steve Higgs, uh, you know, I got to be on my best behavior because you're a journalist who has had, what is it, 175 years of experience in the field now? And uh, I better get things right here, don't you think? (laughs) As long as you correct your mistakes, it's all right with we journalists. Wow. So that's, mistakes are acceptable, huh? As long as you correct them. Oh, boy. Wait till the media haters get a hold of that line. You have written about so many things, but a lot of it has had to do with the environment, especially of the great state of Indiana. And uh, I just want to go back to the year 1970, and it was April, and believe it or not, it was the very first Earth Day. And there was a big celebration, I guess, going on in Dun Meadow. And you somehow found yourself in the middle of the throng of people there. What yeah. happened? Well, that's correct. I was a freshman. That was my second semester of, uh, freshman year at IU. And I was just walking home. I don't remember exactly why I happened to pass by Dun Meadow. But in those days, Dun Meadow was a very happening place. I yeah. mean, there were protests. There were congregations. There were things happened in Dun Meadow all of the time. So it wasn't unusual to go by Dun Meadow and see what was happening. And I just happened to walk upon the, the fir- very first Earth Day celebration in Dun Meadow. And to be honest with you, I kind of fell in love with the word environment. Oh. As simple as that. I just really loved that word. I mean, I had come to IU for the politics. I was a John Kennedy kid. And, you know, oh. I followed the great civil rights and, uh, you know, the, the anti-war protests and things. That's why I came to IU. And I just, so I was involved in in that kind of stuff anyway. And when I discovered the environment, it just sort of changed my life. And and so what did you do afterwards? I mean, how did you, how did you put this into motion in your life? Well, I actually happened uh, the first semester of my uh, uh, junior year. I took a class from a Nobel Prize winning IU professor named Tracy Sonneborn. A class called, it was something like Society, Heredity, and Environment. And I studied that class, and while it was honestly way over my head, I'm a kid from the east side of Indianapolis. I didn't have the greatest uh, college prep education to, to come up, come down here. But that class just sort of changed my way of thinking. And, you know, senior year with some friends, we went out to Lake Griffey. I got a camera my junior year. Uh, we went out to Lake Griffey. I took my first nature photos, and it just kind of took over my life. Yeah, that's another thing that you do is a lot of nature photos, and in fact, I was originally going to describe you as a nature photographer, but you said, hey, hold on a second. I'm more than that. What, what other things have you done as a photographer? Right. Well, as a photographer, I never did a whole lot of photography for newspapers other than when I had the Bloomington Alternative, my own paper. Right. But my three kind of specialties, I did lots of portraits through the years, uh, performing artists. 
Um, shot a lot of performing artists, dancers, mostly musicians, but dancers, uh, theater people, shot a few uh, sessions at the Waldron with different things there. Um, so I did, a lot, those were kind of my three main themes. The nature overrode it all. From that first trip to Lake Griffey when I took my first pictures of trees in 1973 was, was when that happened. Uh, those have been the three themes that I followed my entire career here. And to this day, I mean, ultimately resulting in the nature guidebooks that have a couple hundred of my photos in them. I believe uh, way back, and this is going to show both how old you are and I am, you took a photo of an erstwhile rock star who is now described as an Americana star. Who was that? That would be John Mellencamp. And what was his name back then? <laughs> At that time, he was John Cougar. He had, he had gone beyond Johnny Cougar and then ah. become John Cougar. It was a, a, a slow process to get away from that Johnny Cougar thing. Yes, it was. I, I mean, I remember reading about it in the Real Times and the Primo Times, the early alternative uh, news, uh, newspapers and magazines that were in town here in the 70s. That's when he was Johnny Cougar was when I read about it. This would have been in 79 or 80 uh, with the Great Midwest, um, I Need a Lover. Just as that was yeah. all happening, he was performing up on the North Walnut Street at what was then called Time Out. Today yeah. it's the Switchyard Brewery. There was a lot of great music that came through the Time Out of those days. And I photographed John Cougar on this sort of, it was sort of a practice uh, gig. They were getting ready for a tour, and this yeah. was like their first shakedown, and I photographed him there. My ex-wife, Judy, worked at the Bowery, which was a clothing, a used clothing store below where Uptown Cafe is now, there in the Allen building. She worked with a woman whose boyfriend knew the organ player in Mellencamp's band and set it up for me, for us to go down to Richard Fish's studios, homegrown studios down on the south of Bloomington there, and give John Cougar a uh, slideshow from that night at the timeout. Huh. You're mentioning names. It's, it's amazing how so many people are tied together here. Richard Fish, for instance. Uh, this is really still a small town, don't you think? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. You know, before we started recording, Steve, you were telling me about a Bob Dylan line that really describes, I would say, journalism. What was that line? Well, what he said was, he said, if you want to know what's going on, don't read the papers, talk to people. That's right. And you've been doing that. I've been doing that lately, yeah, for the past couple of, couple of years. Well, I think as a journalist, I'm sure you've been doing it ever since. I mean... How else can one do this journalism stuff? Absolutely, but much of what I did ended up in those newspapers that Dylan said not to read. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of those newspapers, or the main one, I should say, was the Herald Times. For about 11 years, you were a staff writer there, fresh out of uh, the master's degree program at Indiana University, as far as I can see. Exactly. In fact, uh, my connection there was... Bob Zalzberg, who was the editor there, and of course today is a Hall of Fame uh, in the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame, Bob taught my senior reporting, reporting, writing, and editing class, and I met him, and after the class, he said, you know, we could use you over at the HT. I mean, I was out of school for eight years. I was 30 years old when I went back to school, so I'd already lived around Bloomington. I spent four years driving a city bus. I was a union shop steward at Bloomington Transit during a particularly uh, contentious time uh, back in the early 1980s. 
So I had lived in Bloomington for 10 years, well, more than 10 years as a student and then just as a guy who's sort of hanging out. And that's how I made that connection uh, to get a job at the HT, and Bob hired me, and I was there for 11 years. Yet another one of those names uh, in this small town, big town. Well, what were some of the interesting stories that you did at the Herald Times? And I can think of one, and I'm sure we're going to go into it, but go ahead. Well, you know, there are a lot, I mean, from really small ones, like, for example, I wrote a story once. There was a company down on South Old Highway 37, uh, serving materials, I think now, I forget what it was back then, but they were going to do some blasting down there, and some of the neighbors in that area got concerned about the blasting, were afraid that it was going to damage the foundations of their houses. Right. So I went down there and I interviewed a woman, sat in her house, interviewed this woman, wrote this little story of like, you know, eight inches, one of 300 stories that I wrote that year, one that I would barely remember, except many, many years later, my daughter ended up buying that house. Oh. And they threw a big party when they moved in. It's out, it's out in the country. They, have five, they had five acres. And so they had a big bonfire and they invited some of the neighbors. So there's this couple there, this old time couple. He's wearing a John Deere hat and overalls, hardly ever speaks. She's real talkative and friendly, and she starts telling the story about them wanting to do that blasting. And she says, it was in the paper and everything. <laughs> and I went over and told her afterwards, and I was the one that wrote that story. She just looked up at me with these big eyes, and she just said, oh, thank you. From <laughs> <laughs> little things like that that you don't know you have those kind of impacts on people. I mean, the three biggest stories that I covered there was the Hoosier National Forest. Uh, they had a plan in 1985 to clear cut the entire damn forest over a 120 year period. Right. The Bloomington and the PCB incinerator, which you know well about from uh, working with Charlotte Zitlow on your great book. Thanks. And uh, Bloomington Hospital in the early 1990s was re- on the verge of becoming a for-profit hospital. Uh-huh. And people from, concerned people from the hospital came to me at the HT. I wrote a series of stories called Healthcare at the Crossroads. Uh, that basically prevented Bloomington Hospital from becoming for-profit. It's still a nonprofit institution to this day. Now, you're telling me these stories about stories that you've done, and things happened because of those stories. Now, the question I want to say is, did you go into it saying, uh, damn it, I'm not going to let that happen, or damn it, I'm going to make that happen? Is that how you went into those stories? I would be lying if I didn't say that was a part of it. Uh I mean, a journalist's job is to tell the truth. And our job is to determine what is the truth. And along with that comes what should be the outcome. Okay. And, you know, even though that that was certainly, I I would be lying if I didn't say I wanted to stop clear cutting in the Hoosier National Forest. There's no question that that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, I mean, I covered the story like a journalist. There weren't any perspectives. There weren't any, you know, it was covered professionally and, and ethically. You can say that, but how true is it? Because we're all just human beings. We're all at the mercy of our own internal biases and our own internal filters. Can a journalist ever truly be objective? Probably not, but they can be fair. Uh Aha. And that's the bottom line. I mean, throughout my career, I did a lot of investigative reporting And I had a lot of negative impacts on a lot of people. I won't name any names, but I could name a long list of names. But for the most part, what they would say was, I didn't like what you said in the paper, but you were fair to me. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And these were also people who deserved it. You know, I never never went after anybody 
who, you know, there wasn't a fair basis for exposing them. Right. A lot of journalism today is, is all not objective uh, from certain areas. I mean, you could go from Fox News on the conservative side to the Huffington Post on the liberal side, and boy, you know where they're coming from. That's right. That, that is how journalism has evolved, for better or worse. Well, uh, tell me, is it better or worse? Well, I'll tell you this. I have long lectured and talked to my students and anybody who have to listen to me and anybody else who might be willing to listen <laughs> to me, that I've always sort of thought about going back to the earliest days of newspapers when the newspapers in Chicago or New York or places had a dozen different papers, all the, everyone with a different perspective, a labor paper, a business paper, you yeah. know, all of them standing on the street corner, literally the marketplace of ideas, come and read this, come and read that. Newspapers eventually sort of fell into this model of we're going to be everything to everybody, ah. which a lot of people had a lot of criticisms of, and there certainly were a lot of weaknesses and a lot of strengths in that model. Okay, but I've always said, I think maybe we should go back to that. And we're back to that. You know, where everybody is a journalist, everybody has their own opinions. It's no more like you say, I mean, the great newspapers, the Times and the Post and everything, they're just telling the truth. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a significant segment of this society and culture who simply will not even recognize the truth as the truth. But those institutions are still doing it. When I love Ari Melber on MSNBC, but, you know, he's not a journalist. He's telling a narrative. He's giving a spiel. And it's a, it's a narrative. That is, it's a corporate narrative. It's the narrative that sells. And that's the problem with journalism today, in my opinion, is that it's no longer news that people need, it's news that people want. It's what sells. And I can if, tell you the history of that if you want to go into it. If you go back, you know, a hundred years to the days when Ben Hecht was a journalist in Chicago for the newspapers there, and in his memoir, he talks about basically made up stories. They, they talked about uh, uh, digging trenches on the beaches of Lake Michigan to show that some uh, craft had landed on the beach and it was just pure falsehood. Right. And I, I should hope that we're a little bit better these days. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I would like, but you know, I mean, I just saw a thing last night of Ron, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin talking with Maria Bartiromo on Fox News, talking about it wasn't an armed insurrection because there weren't any guns. Well, there have been at least four people charged with possession of weapons. People have been charged with using flagpoles, with using a whole range of, of weapons. But this guy is on television telling people that, in fact, you know, there, were, there was no insurrection because there wasn't any, any people who were armed. I just talked to an old friend today who I haven't seen in a long time who literally cannot talk to his parents anymore. Yeah, because they are ardent Trump supporters, and he he's, lives in Bloomington, and he he said I can't even talk to him. I don't know what to do. You, the journalist, if you were interviewing live on air Ron Johnson, and he said that, what would you do? I would counter him with the facts, like Jonathan Swan does on on HBO uh, on uh, on Axios on HBO. You know, I have the editor of HBO. He comes and talks to one of my classes. Well, zooms in and talks to my classes every year. And we talked about Jonathan Swan and his big interview with Trump last year. And as he points out, he said, for everything that Trump said, Jonathan was ready. He had the facts, he had it documented, he had it right there. And it was such a great interview because he countered the lie with the facts. You know, I mean, MSNBC does that, CNN does that to a degree, 
but Fox doesn't do it at all. Thanks to good old Roger Ailes, who, who was <laughs> considered, hey, listen to this. He was considered too out there even for the Nixon administration when we think back to him as a young punk. Uh-huh. So, okay, we have the Herald Times. You, you did the Herald Times from 1985 through 1996. Right. And then you went to work for the state of Indiana. Right. This is all kind of tied together. And I don't want to get into a big, long talk about the death of newspapers. But the oh, bottom no. line is... The death of newspapers began in the late, late 1980s. It began at the Herald Times, it began at the Orange County Register, it began all around the country. When, edit, when the publishers started getting concerned about the impact from the internet, and they all started changing everything that they did, okay? David Simon, the, the uh, Baltimore Sun journalist uh, who, uh, who did Treme and The Wire on HBO, I think he sums it up best when he says, in response to legitimate concerns about the internet, their choice was to produce newspapers. Uh-huh. His work. And that process began in the late 1980s when I was getting, when, and I was at the HT. And this happened, there were fights at the HT, there were fights in every newsroom across the country. And the Department of Environmental Management, coincidentally, just happened to come down and try to recruit me to go work for them. At a time when this was happening, when I saw what was going, and when I told my friend Bob Zalsberg, who I was talking about earlier, that about this job, he said, I really don't want to see you go, but you don't want to stay. Because he, oh, he knew where they were going. No kidding. And, yeah, and, and I mean, that's, that's the path that they follow. So I decided after 11 years of covering the environment, and that, that's what I got into this whole business for. I went to master's in, into the master's program in journalism to be an environmental writer. I wrote about politics and health and law and social services and all those other things. But the environment was what I was really about. So when they offered me this job in Indianapolis, I decided this is a chance to go behind the lines and see how it really works, to go on the inside. My job was essentially, I, I wrote, edit, well, began editing and publishing a newspaper for them that I ended up just writing completely myself. Huh. Uh, but it was a newspaper that we distributed to 40,000 people around the state of Indiana with interest in the environment, where they let me tell the honest to God's truth about this atrocious environment, this toxic environment that we have in Indiana, with, of course, here's what IDEM is doing about it, which, of course, was our intentions, but because of politics, none of it ever happened. So I spent four years traveling all four corners of the state of Indiana on the state's dime. I got stuck in wetlands doing water testing down in the Ohio River. I walked inside a combined sewer overflow uh, pipe in South Bend, Indiana. I walked on a landfill of nothing but tires where an entire valley was filled with waste tires. I saw everything. That I, I went to CAFOs. I saw everything on the state of Indiana. I spent four years doing that, working for the state and writing this newspaper and really getting an incredible education. Now, when you started with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, uh, a fellow we know a little bit of here in Bloomington was the boss of that department. Who was it? That's correct, John Hamilton. It, it, I started there, in fact, it was the year that uh, Frank O'Bannon was running against Steve Goldsmith for, for uh, governor. And I took a job at IDEM four months before that election. No, two months before that. I, September, October, November. Three months before that election, with my fingers crossed that Frank O'Bannon would be the governor. <laughs> he was the governor because Evan Bayh had both, served his both terms. Yeah. So I went to work there. Frank O'Bannon was there, and Frank brought John Hamilton back from Washington, D.C., where he'd been living and working on housing issues 
He had a, he ran a nonprofit uh, a business in helping people with uh, housing in, in uh, Washington D.C. And Frank O'Bannon brought him back and made him commissioner for the first two years that I was there. So I worked directly for John. I worked uh, my workspace was like fifty feet from his office. I saw anybody who went in and out of John's office when I was there. Oh, you've got all the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> the environment. The environment goes through your life from beginning to, let's not say end, because here you are still alive and kicking. But uh, you were able even to get a few books out of this. Uh, you have been the author of A Guide to Natural Areas of Southern Indiana, 119 Unique Places to Explore. That was uh, published by the IU Press. Uh, in that book, uh, from what I can glean, you took about 3,500 pictures and you walked, uh, you claim, you claim, uh, I'll be a journalist here, uh, you walked 4,500 miles through this darn state. And this is a pretty small state, too. And that's a lot of mileage to walk. I think I probably said I drove 45 <laughs> I guarantee you my old knees wouldn't, wouldn't walk that many miles. Although I've been in places, I decided once I got my knee wedged in between a branch and something, taking a close-up, and I was way out in the middle of the Hoosier National Forest, no cell phone, completely off the grid. Oh. When I started to stand up, my leg was kind of crunched in there, and I thought, I got to stop coming out in places like this by myself because if I got stuck here, you know, nobody would find me until the hunter happened to come by and might just happen to look down and see me in that valley. You'd be critter food. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Who was the person at IU Press who worked with you on that book? In fact, the book was her idea. It was our good friend, Linda O'Black. She was the editor there. I had started the eco-tour business. I had gotten tired of the day-to-day -day journalism stuff. Uh, it ended the Bloomington Alternative. I was just teaching. And I decided to start eco-tours where I would just lead people around in the woods. Not like nature tours. I talk more about history and, and environment. I'm really not good at identifying things and that sort of stuff. Eco-tourism is a business all, all in and of itself. It's an entire industry that I kind of got interested in. So I thought that's what I'll do. I'll just start you know, leading people on walks in the woods and talking about the environment. I did that for a couple of years. There were, I don't know, two or 300 people who I ended up leading on hikes there. But in the beginning, Linda O'Black contacted me from IU Press and said, I've been putting together a series of guidebooks. She'd done one on, the, on karst topography in Southern Indiana. She'd done one on the Knopstone Trail. She said, if you're gonna be doing this anyway, why don't we do a book? So I said, sure. So we got to talking about it. And uh, the a Guide to Natural Areas of Southern Indiana came about there. And then that led to another book. And that led to a second book. Linda was gone from IU Press at that time. Uh, and that actually led to almost two. It led to one because when, the new, when her replacement took over, they also had a brand new director over there. And he was eager to get contracts out there. And I was in the right place at the right time. He said, well, obviously, a, a book on Northern Indiana would be a no-brainer a compliment yeah. to the Southern Indiana book. I said, fine. He said, I would also like to do a book on uh, rewilding Southern Indiana, thinking how can we turn Southern Indiana back wild? And I told him, I said, well, you can't, but the story has already happened here in the Hoosier National Forest. The Hoosier National Forest in the late, 18th, in the late 19th century after the invention of the sawmill was completely and totally devastated, like almost all of Southern Indiana was. The, almost the entire Southern Indiana was logged. 
Okay, the largest stand of timber that hasn't been cut in the state of Indiana is 160 acres, huh. right? So I said, this has already happened. The Hoosier National Forest was completely obliterated through careful and proper management and stewardship. It has been rewilded. There's 200,000 acres of woods in southern Indiana that's essentially undeveloped other than roads and it's logged and that sort of thing, but it's already been rewilded. So I also got a contract with them to do a coffee table book on the Hoosier National Forest. Huh. This has been my dream because in 1978, I was selling cameras downtown in the place some will recall Hazel's Camera Center. <laughs> when a guy named Bill Thomas comes walking in with a flyer for a nature photography workshop he was doing at his property over in Brown County. Well, Bill had done a three coffee table books, one called The Swamp, one called American Rivers, and the other one called, um, uh, I forget. <laughs> but anyway, he had done three, uh, three coffee table books. He had done the 1976 National Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year. We became fast friends. I took his seminar, and it had always been my dream to do a, a book like Bill Thomas's books. So I actually got a contract from IU Press to do that. It was going to be called Rewilding Southern Indiana, huh. the Hoosier National Forest. I actually completed the book. I had about 150. It was going to be a full-size, full-color book. I had 150 photographs. I had the whole thing written. I actually submitted it to them. And they decided that it wasn't that it wasn't financially feasible to do. They wanted to do it in black and white, but I just didn't see it as a black and white book. So that one's still kind of hanging on the shelf. But let, let me explain. This wasn't really a. I wasn't surprised because I had a friend who proposed a similar book to them on Indiana trees, and they initially asked him to raise twenty thousand dollars because you know it's very expensive to do a full color, full size book. Yeah. And they eventually agreed for 5000 So, I mean, they did this with me by giving me an advance on it, you know. So, oh. I, I wasn't surprised that they couldn't afford to actually publish it. And they let me keep the advance. So, that one didn't quite happen. Talk about sticky thickets. <laughs> the book publishing world makes uh, almost makes the newspaper world look uh, perfectly fine. That's a, a world of heartbreak. Yes. Linda told me that if I had done the Southern Indiana book, I think even five years, we'll say 10 years before, they would have printed 20,000 copies. They printed wow. two. They printed two. Because <laughs> yeah, hey. people don't buy books anymore, you know, as you know. Well, you know, people are buying books, and believe it or not, during the pandemic lockdown, people were buying books like crazy. There's also the movement to go to independent or local bookstores as opposed to everybody doesn't like Amazon, right? They think, right. you know, Bezos has got tons of dough. He doesn't need any more. Right. And uh, I think that the book publishing business is not dying. It's just, it's going to be a niche audience, though. It's not like it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, a, a yet another book called Eternal Vigilance, Nine Tales of Environmental Heroism in Indiana. And that, too, was published by Indiana University Press. La, 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 la. Well, we've done it again. We've gone over our 28-minute time allotment here on Big Talk. Join us next week, same time, same station, for part two of our chat with journalist... Steve Higgs.
lips and 